Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me tonight is Luke Boggs. Luke, how you doing? Doing well. Doing a retro show. Just you and me. Just you and me tonight. Um, but we the got, world. We got a lot to dig into tonight. So on... Tonight's show, it was all about voting in Atlanta this week. A committee from the U.S. House came to town on a fact-finding mission to review problems with access to the ballot during the 2018 elections. And then over at the Gold Dome, the House Governmental Affairs Committee held several hours of hearings on their own reforms to voting. We'll talk about this new legislation that will change a lot about how you vote. Then healthcare was on the agenda for the Senate this week. Governor Kemp's legislation allowing him to apply for healthcare waivers from the federal government took another step forward, but it was also met with a lot of resistance from Democrats. So we'll talk about whether Dems can force any changes to the bill. And finally, last week, the AJC and WSB published an investigation into House Speaker David Ralston's use of his legislative responsibilities to delay criminal cases on behalf of his clients. Uh, This was met with some criticism from both Republicans and Democrats, but somewhat muted criticism from people who were actually elected. Uh, But will there be any real push to hold the speaker accountable? We'll talk about that. Uh, But let's start with voting, Luke. So there were there was a lot of action on voting this week. The U.S. House came to town and Stacey Abrams testified before a House committee about problems with voting in the 2018 elections. And then over at the Capitol, uh, Republicans were pushing through House Bill 316. They had hours of hearings on it. I think there were hearings on maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week. This is a bill based on recommendations from the SAFE Commission, which was the commission Governor Kemp created when he was Secretary of State to review voting machine options for the state. So it's got new voting machines for the state, which are the digital voting machines that are not hand-marked paper ballots. Um, and then it's also got a bunch of other things related to complaints Democrats had with voting with the voting system during the 2018 elections. Um, Luke, what are your thoughts on this legislation that the House is considering right now? Democrats have really dug in demanding that Georgia's next voting system be based on hand-marked paper ballots instead of devices that are called ballot-marking devices, but they're basically touchscreens where you input your vote and then your vote gets printed out onto a piece of paper, and that is the record of your vote. Democrats have really dug in in favor of the old-school technology of just marking a Scantron with a pen. Why do you think they've dug in on that, and, and what is the difference between these different types of voting technologies? I think there's a couple reasons for Democrats taking the approach that they have, and some Republicans, I I would add. Uh, First off, most of the country does hand-marked paper ballots. Like, we did not come up with this idea. This is not some unique to Georgia Democrats thing. Most of the country uses this method. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, we in Georgia have been in a unique position that we have proven in court that the old computer touchscreen-based machines are hackable and have a lot of problems and, uh, you know, are not uh, the most secure method. And so those two things together are why I think uh, Georgia Democrats are pushing it uh, so hard. I personally also agree with this method. And the primary reason is 
the concern with our current system is that you put your you know you put your voting information you pick your people on a touch screen and then you don't get a paper receipt and you can't really see like what your results were and there's really no way to do an audit of that system if we continue in a system where the only input is people touching a touch screen and then you get a paper receipt if there's some problem with the computer system the paper receipt will be messed up and you will be again checking that your you know your first point of audit will be the computer system people prefer having a hand marked paper ballot system because if the machines break if they don't work if there's any problem, worst case scenario, you can just take the paper and count it. And that's a far more trustworthy thing to look at than the machine itself. It's easier to audit. And I think that is why we're pushing that. Now, do you think this, I don't know, I don't have as strong of feelings on the difference between the handmarked paper ballots and the, and the ballot marking devices, but I don't know, every time... I've heard this push about hand-marked paper ballots. I start thinking about the 2000 election and, and hanging chads down in Florida. Is, is the implementation of hand-marked paper ballots better now than it used to be? Or is there some risk well, in any type of voting that you have and we just accept one risk over the other? So for one, the implementation is better. I, I remember... Uh, former Congressman John Barrow, when he was running for Secretary of State, he came on our program and talked about how many states have a system, and I believe this is the one that uh, most Democrats are advocating for, where you would mark a paper ballot, you would then put it into a machine, and the machine could tell you, hey, did you like if you messed up something, or you marked you know, two people in the same race, or if it wasn't clear what your answer was, and help you fix that, and then, you know, once you verified and you're like, yep, this is my final results, you get a paper receipt of that as well. And so the hanging Chad Florida scenario, like, again, this is not rocket science. This is not problems that states that take this stuff seriously have run into. The states that care about this and don't want this to be a problem have solved this problem and have solved it for quite some time. Uh, the, the real frustration seems to be that we're going with the same company that made the previous machines, which we are, you know, having a lot of trouble with, and are also, you know, supporters of the the new administration. And I think that is also a cause of concern. And so um, while no system is perfect and there will be errors uh, in a hand-marked paper ballot system or a touchscreen system, I, I think the, the reasons that we're going towards the touchscreen route is don't seem as legitimate as the arguments uh, why a paper ballot system would be better. Yeah, allies of Stacey Abrams have made a lot of hay out of the fact that somebody who is in top leadership for Governor Kemp now used to be an executive at one of these voting machine manufacturing companies that may get the bid. I mean, it's going to go through an open bid process, but we'll see because this company did make the old machines. We'll see if they have a leg up or if they have an inside route, given where one of their former top executives is now. Um, but this discussion, it's wider than just the voting machines and, and which method we choose. There's also other fixes in HB 316. It basically rolls back some of the requirements of the exact match law, which 
resulted in a lot of people having their ballots, particularly their absentee ballots, rejected in particularly in Gwinnett County when the signature on the ballot did not exactly match a signature that the county had on file. There are some relaxed provisions in the voter purge process. Um, and there's some other little fixes that are, are mostly grounded in the critiques that Stacey Abrams and her allies had of all of the problems with voting in this last election. But Luke, it does seem like a lot of the focus is on which type of voting machine is going to be picked. Do you think that some of the other issues with our voting system are getting short shrift in this discussion? I don't. And the primary reason for that is my cynicism and the fact that this administration and the Republican Party would do almost nothing to fix those problems because they benefit from those problems and have actively encouraged them. So as far as being able to affect the process and doing something productive, the voter machine talk is the one where I believe Democrats can have the most influence and can get the most done. So I think the somewhat laser focus on that has has been good. Um, as I know, we're going to talk about later, uh, you know, I helped create the Georgia Voting Rights Act. And there's been some other legislation out there that um, is trying to address the bigger issues with the Georgia election process. And uh, those conversations need to happen too. But I'm happy that we are primarily focused on the voter machine topic uh, right now because that is the the most important thing I think and then my uh, slight follow-up because you know you, you mentioning the the I think as Jim Galloway called it the sweeteners that are in uh, HB 316 to try to appease Democrats those I mean those are good fixes I'm happy they're there I would rather have those small fixes than not have them but they definitely are not enough uh, for me to feel confident that in 2020, we will not have the same or similar problems. So another element of the voting discussion this week uh, was the hearing that Congress had in Atlanta. So Congress, a congressional committee came to the Carter Center, only Democrats from this committee came and they brought forward Stacey Abrams to testify about the problems with voting in the 2018 elections. And one of the explicit aims of this committee is to begin to build a legislative record to try to reinstate preclearance under the Voting Rights Act in Georgia and other states like Georgia. Luke, can you just tell us a little bit about the background of preclearance and why we don't have it in the state anymore? So in 2013, the Supreme Court in Shelby versus Holder ruled that Preclearance was unconstitutional. Not be not preclearance itself, but the formula that put states under preclearance. Because basically, uh, for those of you who don't know, during with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, they established some formulas that would put certain states under the Voting Rights Act if. African American participation was so low, or if they had a poll tax, or if they had et cetera, et cetera, you know, if they met these certain qualifications. So in that court case, basically the Supreme Court said you can't keep using these 1965 numbers to put people under a formula so that they have to be uh, under preclearance. And one of the big reasons that they they said that was the fact that like the Voting Rights Act had been amended a couple times in between 1965 and 2013. And so 
the important thing that I, I think a lot of people miss in the conversation about the Voting Rights Act is Section 5, which is the um, section that requires preclearance, is not DEG. It's just the formula that you put people under Section 5 in. So what this uh, congressional committee is probably working on is they're trying to come up with a new formula to put states under Section 5. So... What preclearance does and why it would be very useful for the state of Georgia and other southern states that would likely fall under it, or honestly, as some people advocate for and I would advocate for, just put everyone under Section 5, is before you make changes to your voting laws or to like where precincts are, how many precincts you have open, how long your voting your early voting period is, things of that nature the Justice Department has to sign off on it and say that you're not doing it for uh, the, you're not doing it to reduce the opportunity for minorities to elect their candidate of choice. Well, yeah. um, And so, so basically, you know, the core of the argument from the Supreme Court was that these issues were not a problem anymore, that voter turnout among African Americans had increased in the South and that real discrimination that you saw during the Jim Crow era just didn't exist anymore. And so part of the duty for this committee of the U.S. House is to build up a legislative record of instances where they believe discrimination is happening. And if you paid any attention to our show or Georgia politics in 2018, I mean, that was the claim made by just about every Democrat was that the hurdles that were in the way of people voting were intentionally put there to keep minority voters from going to the polls. And, you know, exact match is the one that stands out to me. I, I saw a representative B. Wynn say either yesterday or today on Twitter that, you know, we've had all this discussion in, of exact match, which means that your information in a database, the spelling of your name, the hyphens in your name, it all has to match exactly with all of the voter registration forms, all the forms that you're using. It's just got to match across the board. And in the committee hearing on the committee agenda that Representative B. Wynn was attending as a member of the committee, her name was spelled incorrectly. And so was Renita Shannon's. So like the just the small errors that create hurdles for people, they are prevalent basically everywhere was sort of the, the case that B. Wynn was making and, and that that is what makes changing things like exact match so important. Um, Though I would like to point out that exact match was approved by the Justice Department through preclearance. Oh, was it? It was. People uh, always forget that. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe we need a new Justice Department. Um, well, it was the Obama Justice Department. <laughs> approved maybe it. we still need a new <laughs> Justice Department. Um, yeah, so where, Luke, where do you think the reforms to voting are actually going to come from? It's It's a big discussion in our state, but it's obviously a pillar of U.S. Democrats in the U.S. House. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren, when she has been on the trail, she's been talking about issues related to voting and, and taking a federal look at that. Where do you think these changes are actually going to occur? So 
I reject the premise of your question a little bit because the changes are already happening. There's been a lot of really amazing progress on voting rights and making the process of voting easier in many states that are controlled by Democrats and some controlled by Republicans. Uh, so on that front, the reform's already happening. Uh, for Georgia specifically, I suspect the federal government is going to change things significantly before the state government does. Uh, because... Because I want to be very specific here about the, you know, the Shelby versus Holger uh, case, you know, the Supreme Court, while they, you know, like people have given a very unnuanced version of Justice Roberts opinion of saying that discrimination is over. And that's not exactly what he said. It was more of the fact that the discrimination that the Voting Rights Act was trying to target and that specifically the formula which put people under preclearance was trying to target that discrimination was was definitely over. I mean, if you just look at the metrics, like that's not a formula that is reflected in the reality on the ground and the data on the ground. Yeah, that I mean, you said, don't have you don't have explicit poll taxes anymore. You don't have explicit literacy tests the way you did. Right, and African American participation has been increased dramatically. Um, so that that's very relevant to that. Uh, decision. I think that's important to point out because if you don't acknowledge that fact, then you will lose sight of the fact that it would not be hard to amend the Voting Rights Act and create a version of it that would pass and be constitutional. And so that's why I hark on that point. Really, to to get a new amended Voting Rights Act, the only thing it would require is a Congress willing to pass one. Uh, I don't think President Trump would be, but if we get a Democratic president in 2021 and we have the, uh, if we hold on to the House, I would be surprised if a Republican Senate didn't vote for it because the Voting Rights Act was something that was uh, incredibly bipartisan, almost got unanimous support every time it came up for revision. So on that front, I think, I think, uh, coming back to some form of preclearance is is possible. Well, and with that, I think we're going to leave the voting discussion there. We've got a lot more coverage coming on this, including our discussion of the Georgia Voting Rights Act introduced by Representative Scott Holcomb um, and, and some of the bigger Democratic alternatives that at least we think would make some more significant systemic change to our voting system in the state. But let's move on to health care. So health care was central on the agenda for the Senate this week. Uh, Governor Kemp has had his floor leader, Senator Blake Tillery, introduce Senate Bill 106. And that legislation is pretty simple legislation that allows, it gives the governor the authority to apply for two different kinds of waivers from the federal government related to health care. The first waiver is a Medicaid waiver that would allow expansion of Medicaid up to 100% of the poverty line, which is not the fully legally allowed amount. And we'll discuss in a minute why that is meaningful. And then there's a second kind of waiver. It's basically a waiver of Obamacare that would allow some changes in the private health care markets. Luke, this legislation passed out of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee there was a lot of criticism from Democrats that this process was moving too quickly and that not enough attention is being paid to the details of this legislation. Why do you think Democrats are levying criticisms about the process moving too fast and about the details when this is an expansion of health care and it's coming under Republican-led government 
and it's getting into an issue that Democrats have campaigned on for years. Why are uh, Democrats pushing back now? Well, because, you know, the devil is in the details, and we don't have a lot of details for what the healthcare expansion this bill is calling for is, because it basically is giving uh, Governor Brian Kemp a pretty broad authority to come up with a plan and give it to the federal government, uh, you know, pretty unilaterally. And so I think on that front, um, that's that's a key reason for a lot of the concern. But it really isn't a surprise to anyone who's watching because, uh, you know, back when uh, Governor Deal was running for re-election in 2014, the legislature took this ability out of the hands of the governor to unilaterally make health care decisions. And now that uh, Brian Kemp is pursuing health care expansion, surprise, surprise, they've given the governor or are attempting to give the governor unilateral authority again. Yeah, so let's dive into some of the details here. The... Most important sort of policy stuff in this bill is a requirement that whatever waiver Governor Kemp offers to agree to with the federal government, that it only expand Medicaid up to 100% of the poverty line. Um, Obamacare allows Medicaid expansion up to 138% of the poverty line. And what this means in concrete policy terms for the state of Georgia is Medicaid is a program where the state chips in a little bit of money and the federal government chips in a little bit of money. And the way Obamacare was structured, if you expanded Medicaid to the full level allowable under the law, the federal government would pay $9 and the state government would pay $1. In the the way that the Medicaid program is set up now for traditional Medicaid, the federal government is putting in about 67% and Georgia's putting in the rest. So it's much less than the nine to one match that you get on the Medicaid expansion population. And what the case that healthcare advocates made in the Senate Health and Human Services Committee this week was that by only expanding up to the poverty line, you're not going as far as you could, and you're not going to get the most generous federal match to cover all of those people under Medicaid. And so for the state of Georgia, it's going to cost more money to cover fewer people when you decide to only expand to 100% of poverty instead of 138. That's the big concrete policy issue that's at stake here. And Democrats in committee wanted to amend the bill to encourage the governor to apply for full expansion up to 138% of poverty so that we would not spend more money to cover fewer people. We would spend less money to cover more people, which is just a better deal. The argument from Republicans here is that Medicaid is a broken program and that it does not pay enough to doctors when people use their Medicaid coverage to get health care and that it would be better for people who are just above the poverty line to go into the private marketplaces instead of getting on Medicaid coverage. None of the substance really backs them up on that. The financial liability for people in the marketplace when you have as low an income as between 101% of poverty and 138% of poverty, you're much more financially vulnerable to big medical bills at that income than you would be if you had more money you there are other benefits to having Medicaid coverage that are not in private health insurance coverage because Medicaid is a program specifically designed for lower income people. 
And so basically where the state appears to be going based on this legislation is negotiating a worse deal than we could get. And that is sort of the policy reason, the concrete reason as to why Democrats are are throwing up their hands at this moment. Luke, if we go through this process and we wind up with what is known as a partial Medicaid expansion instead of getting the better deal going all the way, how should Democrats talk about this on the trail? Because the the implicit I mean, it's assumption easy. It's here, easy. We need to expand Medicaid. <laughs> they haven't done it. You, you don't get partial credit for doing it. I mean, that that's... That's I think the line does not change uh, because there are some partial expansions of Medicaid that are far more reasonable and far more acceptable, I think, and that, you know, we're more bipartisan in some other states. But the, the route that the Kemp administration seems to be going is one of which the message should not change because it's not good policy. It's it's bad ideology that's driving the decision that they're going to make. And the people they have working on it are not this, you know, the greatest policy wonks in the state of Georgia is the greatest political operatives in the state of Georgia. And so on, on that front, I think they are uh, focused too much on doing the bare minimum to stop the emergency that's happening with rural hospitals shutting down, but not doing enough to actually solve the problem. And, you know, it, the, complete lack of leadership on the issue and the, you know this fear that Republicans have of seeing to do something that will uh, you know make the Obama administration oh wait that administration's not there anymore look better you know is ridiculous to me and so yeah I, I just the fact that they're not results focused on uh, this potential healthcare expansion and it's ideologically focused in the sense that like they don't at least my impression of this administration is that they don't care that just doing straight Medicaid expansion would be cheaper and would be better and would cover more people. They are more concerned with saying that we are doing a system that will put people in the private market because yay, private market, than anything else. And I think that is a really short-sighted way to look at it. Well, the other thing, um, just to follow up on something you said earlier, the other Medicaid expansions, they weren't partial expansions, but they were sort of based on some conservative ideas, some market-oriented ideas, but even those... As was Obamacare, just to you know, be clear, since it has a Heritage Foundation idea. <laughs> and even those expansions went all the way up to the full amount, 138% of poverty, in a way that we are not contemplating right now. But I think the other issue here is that there are a lot of different ideas on the table that I've heard discussed from legislators, the chair of the Senate... Health and Human Services Committee is looking into something like Indiana did, which is a full Medicaid expansion, but with a conservative twist on it. Um, there's also been a discussion of doing what Arkansas did, which is also a full Medicaid expansion with a conservative twist on it. Uh, but there is no sense to me among legislators right now that it is worth it to instill some guardrails to guide the Kemp administration in their negotiations with the federal government. And the thing that bothers me about that is we, you know, Republicans have been resistant to expanding Medicaid because they say that in the long run, the federal government is not going to honor their commitment to pay nine out of $10 for the Medicaid expansion. 
by pursuing this strategy of only a partial Medicaid expansion, they are actually choosing the riskier option where in the long run, the federal government might not honor the deal that gets made with Georgia if a new administration wants to see states expand coverage to the fullest extent they can under the law. This is a special agreement that would be made between the state of Georgia and the federal government that no other state has gotten. And it's not clear to me that a future administration is going to honor that agreement. And so after complaining about the riskiness of Medicaid expansion in the long run, when Democrats propose the whole thing, they've now taken the riskier path to coverage expansion when nobody asked for that. <laughs> and so it's just, yeah, it's the ideological path. That's the thing. There, there has never been a policy argument against Medicaid expansion. It has been Obama did it. And it's not private, so we don't like it. That's and that's the thing. They, they will they will twist themselves into a pretzel to find a version of this thing that is more private industry based. Yeah. So so obviously there's still a lot of details left to be worked out. Um, just quickly before we move on, the the other kind of waiver is a waiver that would make changes to the Obamacare marketplaces. So if you get tax credits to buy healthcare in the individual market, some of these changes might impact the healthcare that you're able to access. And here too, the devil is also in the details about what they're going to do. Governor Kemp, when he was on the campaign trail, he campaigned on something called a reinsurance waiver, which basically to sort of strip the policy details of this, it would result in lower prices for health insurance on the marketplace. And both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams agreed that this was a good path forward. And it was based on waivers adopted, some in blue states, some in red states. This was very much a bipartisan idea. Since the election, this concept of making changes to the private market has really been turned completely on its head. They may still do the reinsurance waiver that was contemplated on the campaign trail, but they also may add in policies that limit consumer protections in healthcare for people buying on the individual market. So if you buy what you think is fully comprehensive health insurance that covers all of the essential benefits that you would need, one of the things that this waiver appears appears to allow the governor to do is to negotiate new benefit standards for plans sold in the marketplace so that some of the benefits that you had in your healthcare plan before you may not have going forward. You may, it may not cover maternity care or it may not, it may carve out things like uh, paying for ambulance rides. Your, your insurance is going to give you less protection if this is the path that Republicans decide to take. Um, so those are so that's the other kind of waivers. And as this moves forward, we'll discuss it more because, you know, the aim of the Democrats here is to put more details in this legislation to get more boundaries for the governor to operate in, because this is giving him a lot of authority to move forward with these negotiations. Um, so the details are really going to matter here. And, and we'll be talking about the details more moving forward. Uh, but let's wrap the show this week with a discussion of House Speaker David Ralston. So the AJC and WSB published an investigation last week showing that Speaker Ralston was using his authority as a legislator to delay cases in which he is an attorney representing a client 
because he can make a claim before the court that he has legislative duties to attend to, and therefore he can't be in court to represent his client, and the case for his client needs to be delayed until the speaker is going to be available. Now, this is an authority available to all attorneys who work in the General Assembly, um, and it is based on a law that goes back to 1905 that basically requires courts to accommodate the legislative schedule. But the AJC found that in 21 cases they examined over a two-year period, he filed 57 requests for continuances in those cases. And of the 93 days that he claimed to be unavailable for court, 76 of those days were outside of legislative session or special sessions. So the speaker came under fire for not only the number of times that he's delayed cases, but also the kinds of cases of which he was seeking delays in. Uh, The core of the story is about a man who is on trial for domestic violence for beating up his wife. Um, There were other cases where a a man was charged with enticing a child for indecent purposes. His case has been awaiting trial since 2009. And another case of a 14-year-old girl who told police that a preacher who stayed over in her home when he was traveling and preaching at their church, that this preacher raped and molested a 14 year old girl. And in that case, uh, Speaker Ralston has asked for eight delays. And it's been more than five years since that happened. Um, Luke, this has put the speaker on the hot seat, but there's been somewhat limited calls like he's on the hot seat, but not on the on fire seat, because there has been somewhat muted criticism of the speaker. Um, Do you think that the speaker should face some sort of consequence for using the legislative excuse here? So let's first cover uh, some of the areas where he will not face criticism and then kind of move into the where he should face criticism. So first off, and I asked a couple of my law professors about this as well, it doesn't seem like he broke any legal ethics. And if anything, he was kind of following legal ethics because as a lawyer, it is your job to be a zealous advocate for your clients. And uh, specifically, Rule 3.12, which is about uh, expediting litigation, says, uh, quote, a lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to expedite litigation consistent with the interests of the client, end quote. So it is actually, there's a solid argument that he was following legal ethics by keeping these court cases out of court because that is in the interest of his client. So on that front, there's like nothing the like bar association is going to do to Ralston because he was probably following the best interests of his client and representing them well in that sense. Uh, because, you know, as, as a lawyer, you're supposed to be completely, you don't care what your client di- did or did not do. Your job is to represent their interests. So that's thing one. Uh, thing two is one thing I wish this reporting had done is try to go a step further and try to prove if Ralston literally had no legislative like obligations that he was following because like, let's be fair and honest, like, if you're the House Speaker, you probably do a lot of legislative stuff outside of session. Now, do I believe that he did that for, like, 10 years for one case? No. And so this gets into the area of, like, where, uh, you know, accountability needs to be held. Um, I really doubt that all of these situations were legitimate legislative duties that he was he was uh, following. And what you would like to see is some accountability from the General Assembly on this if 
folks think is an issue. But as far as I've seen, I don't think I've seen anybody in the General Assembly say anything about this. Well, there is a push from a Republican that we'll get to. And I think it's because he is the House Speaker and that he has uh, the power to kill or push through any legislation and take people on committee, put people on committees and take them off of them. So... I don't think anything's going to happen to to Ralston in, in this unless somehow him he you know someone definitively proves that he did not have legislative obligations on the day of some of these cases and that there's some consequence to that. But I'm not really sure what it would be. So yeah, I mean, I take the legal ethics claims and. I don't think I disagree with you that he might have vi- that he probably did not violate any legal ethics in trying to be the best representative he could for his client. The issue for me comes from the fact that this power is given to him not because he is an attorney, but because he is a member of the legislature. So he is using a power derived from being a public servant, derived from being a representative of the people to what really very specifically looks like uh, deliberate attempts to delay cases on behalf of people who I think should not have their cases delayed, people who have beaten their wives, people who have molested children, people who have driven drunk. I I have a problem allegedly, with it. Allegedly, to be fair. Allegedly. Because that's how you have to in the justice system. It's true. Um, but. Although the the core, the main character in, this, in the AJC investigation is somebody who had a long record of beating women. And part of the reason that he is paying the speaker so much money, and he explicitly told them this in an interview, is because the power of the House Speaker to delay cases is something that is known locally. And he said that he paid $20,000 to the speaker to have him on retainer and that the speaker was worth every penny. Um, and so, Yeah, I, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying I approve of what Ralston's doing or that I think it's like politically or morally okay. Uh, I just, you know, a lot of people have been saying that there was no justification for this and the legal ethics element is is there but you know also as a lawyer you have a obligation to be an officer of the court and to like you know not be uh unnecessarily obstructionist and there's definitely an argument uh for that as well i mean the other thing is too and you know one thing i'm just shocked of is the fact that um there just hasn't been some judges that have told ralston like you're gonna pick a day right now that we're going to do this case because I'm sick of it being delayed and, you know, like tell me a day and we're going to stick to it. And that's when this case is going to happen. Because if it was anybody other than Ralston who was trying to pull this, it would not work. I mean, you know, it's the fact that he is the house speaker that he's been able to pull this off. Yeah. And I, I, the other thing that this brings to mind for me is this is another one of these places. This this actually fits really well into the kind of Me Too conversation to me because this is another one of those places where an institution is stacked against a survivor of domestic violence or sexual violence. You know, the speaker, he is he is a person, he is a very powerful person in this state. He is a person wielding a power given to him because he is a public official. Um, and he is using it pretty clearly, at least in the case of the uh, 
the main character of the investigation who has repeatedly been on trial for uh, beating up women in his life, he is using it pretty explicitly to help that person escape justice and, and to, to help to prevent a survivor of domestic violence from having justice served. And so this is the, the bigger conversation here, I think, is this is yet another pillar in our society where an institution has interests stacked against people who have been, who have suffered terrible things. And we need to take a step back and interrogate why this institutional power is being used to help people who have been accused of doing terrible things. And so that's where I think the conversation needs to be beyond just the narrow, is this ethical for Ralston as an attorney? Does he technically have this power, the same power that all legislators do? Yes, both of those things are true. And yes, he is technically on the right side of the law in both of those instances. But he is furthering a culture of a lack of accountability for people who do bad things. Um, and and that is something that is a structure in our society that we've seen repeatedly in these cases of domestic violence, of sexual violence. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely steps that need to be taken to amend this law because, you know, back in 1905, when they passed it, it made a whole lot more sense. Travel was a lot slower and, you know, it, it, people are going to be gone for legislative duties for quite some time. But, you know, I don't know how long the drive is from Blue Ridge to Atlanta, but I, I can't imagine it's that long. Um, so, you know, this this is one of those things that I hope that the story and the news, you know, holding him accountable, which they deserve a lot of credit for looking into this and, and finding out about it. Um, I'm hoping that will be enough to change Ralston's behavior on this. And if not Ralston's behavior, hopefully some of the judges uh, that these cases are before him will, you know, uh, stand up, <laughs> stand up for it because, uh, you know, th- there's a system in place and it's, it's not just Ralston who is abdicating his duty. There's other folks who really should uh, be, be using their power in the system to try to make this thing happen. Well, we'll see if uh, the speaker faces any consequences for this. There is a push from one lone Republican state representative, David Clark, to have the speaker suffer some consequences for this. Um, And Eric Erickson actually was heavily critical of the speaker uh, in a column that he wrote for his website. But uh, I think there's some of that criticism is convenient, given that Erickson is a long foe of Speaker Ralston. Um, so we will see where that goes. We will see if Democrats stand up and push have more pushback on this. Uh, they have not explicitly called for him to resign officially. Um, but we will see if if this changes at all moving forward. Uh, but with that, I think we are going to leave that there for this week. And uh, Luke, thank you again for joining the podcast. It's always fun to be here. All righty, guys. We will talk to y'all later. Later. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.